0: A law known as the Federal Acquisition Supply Chain Security Act aims to reduce the potential for damage from cybersecurity threats. The White House interim final rules for agencies came out in September. Now industry has weighed in. And for one view, we turn to the senior vice president for policy at the Information Technology Industry Council, Gordon Bitko. Gordon, good to have you back. Here with you. Now, the whole field of supply chain security, supply chain assurance is kind of incoherent because of so many initiatives going on. The Chinese Equipment Initiative, the Cybersecurity Model Maturity Initiative, and then there is also the Federal Acquisition Supply Chain Security Act. So tell us where these rules fit into the whole picture. I guess these rules were first issued in September
1: issued in September. The act itself goes back to the Federal Acquisition Supply Chain Security Act of 2018, and it took some time for the rule to come out, Tom. As to where they fit into the whole picture, that's actually the key question here. There are many, many different pieces of supply chain regulations, policies, legislation, and it's a very confusing landscape. In fact, you can look, Tom, at the Cyber Solarium Commission, who just put out a supply chain-specific addendum, and one of the explicit things that they called for is for all the different government agencies and different folks who are involved in the process of doing supply chain work to figure out some ways to streamline all this. Everybody recognizes that the need is real, that there are actual risks and threats that need to be addressed, but at the same time, the proliferation of all of these different regimes makes figuring out how to do it effectively a real challenge. All that being said, if the FASC is done correctly, it's a very good approach. It's a very broad approach. It looks at risk. It's an interagency. It calls for engagement between industry and government between public and private. So when you take those things together, it has the potential to be the core essential framework for how the government should be thinking about managing supply chain risk. But they have to think about how to integrate it and all these other pieces to it.
0: And so you have the congressionally chartered Cyberspace Solarium Commission also weighing in with lots of uh, topics on supply chain. And I guess what ITIC is saying, what your group is saying, let's start with the Federal Acquisition Security Council, The FASC seems to be the place where maybe all of these different initiatives could be coordinated and made into a little bit more coherent structure that's facing the industry, correct?
1: Absolutely, Tom. What we would like to see is because the FASC does call for a task force across government and for public-private cooperation, and it adopts a risk-based approach. So it, it has in its core the things that we think are necessary to be successful, And it is something that it allows each agency to make decisions within the context of this broader framework to make their own decisions, to do them under the umbrella of an overall more coherent structure so industry doesn't have to figure out separately what the process is and how to work with the Department of Defense differently from Homeland Security or the Department of Justice, or pick an agency, there's a, an overall framework that this offers, which allows for a much more efficient and effective approach. The other thing I think, Tom, that's important about this approach versus some of the others is the nature of the threats evolves and changes constantly. And for the government to address those and to keep up with those means they need an adaptive framework. Some of the other regulations, Section is a good example, they're very rigid. They rely on naming a particular company or a set of companies who are perceived to be the bad actors. And nobody's questioning that in that particular case. But what happens when that changes? What happens if there's a new list of entities who are identified? And do we want an approach where every time something like that happens, we need new statutory authority to require replacing a particular entity? Or can we leverage a process like this, which has the potential, if it's done effectively, to be much more responsive, to be much more adaptive to those threats as they do evolve? And I think another really important point there, Tom, is it will allow government agencies and industry to be focused on the importance of competitiveness. If you're focused entirely on we're not allowed to use this one company, the government procurement folks are going to spend a lot of time thinking about how do we get rid of that. That's all they're going to be worried about. If they've got a risk-based approach, though, which is what the FASC allows for, then you can spend more time thinking about what are the trade-offs, what are the pros and cons, how do I minimize the risk of using this particular company? Is it so severe that we have to pull them out, or is it something that's acceptable and we can spend more on getting better capabilities? To our end users, to the people on the mission side of our agency who might need these products.
0: Got it. We're speaking with Gordon Bitko. He's vice president for policy at the Information Technology Industry Council. And I wanted to discuss the issue of data sharing, information sharing. And this has been something the government has sought to figure out since really since 9-11. And Homeland Security has a big apparatus now in place for since the inception of the department to have vertical data sharing between industries, sectors, and the Homeland Security Department. And you've got some ideas for data sharing in your recommendations.
1: We do, Tom. That's right. The core of it is absolutely some of the work that DHS has done where there is an existing supply chain task force and that is an interagency and public-private cooperative organization that has helped think through what a lot of the risk models are and how those can be applied effectively and how information can flow back and forth. As I was noting earlier, threats change quickly, the risks change, and so that information flow and having it streamlined and efficient between government agencies within government and to private industries is really important. What we would really like to see is to build on the supply chain task force that's existed and to instantiate something like that as a more permanent solution. The law actually calls for public-private cooperation as one of its requirements. It says that there is a requirement to engage between government and the private sector and other non-governmental stakeholders in performing the requirements of understanding the risks and making sure that that information is propagated across all the stakeholders. So it's a requirement in the underlying act that is the basis for the rules that we're discussing
0: now. And statutes also come with the sanctions if a statute is violated in some way. And I think a lot of companies have been worried what happens if they miss something that should not be in their supply chain that's proscribed by law and then it's discovered. Are they False Claims Act violators then or are they simply violating the spirit of the statute? And so a couple of your recommendations have to do with due process and possible sanctions for companies that may inadvertently run afoul of some of these regulations. What are your thoughts there?
1: I think that's a really important point to elaborate on a little bit, Tom, so I'm glad you brought it up. What we're really asking for here is just clarity on how those things are going to be done. What is the timeline if a particular company or product is excluded for a particular reason? How long do companies have to respond? How long is the review period going to be? Is there the opportunity for an appeal? All those things, I think just in the natural course of as rules like this are developed, this is so complex. Those things, they take time, and people are going to have to work through them. So what we're asking for is just to not lose visibility of the importance of those issues and to make sure, like you said, a lot of the time it's not an intentional violation. It's not a false claims act. It's something changed. There was a new update. A new risk was identified. A new product was identified that should be excluded and there needs to be the opportunity to respond. Some of these things, sometimes it's going to be easy. Sometimes, though, it's going to be a product or a service that's really instrumental to the way the company does business or to the way they provide business to the government, and that's going to take a lot more time to respond to. So what we're really just asking for here is, as you described it, due process about how those things are done and clarity about what those processes are going to be.
0: And the related issue, of course, is risk management on the part of both sides, including the government. And you've asked to clarify that. I think the example that comes up is, well, if you have Chinese equipment, where in your structure of your corporation is it? If it's a piece of equipment controlling the parking lot gate – that's something different than a piece of equipment controlling communications in systems that contain government-related data.
1: Right. That's one of the things that we like about this framework. It allows for a risk-based approach, as opposed to, like I mentioned, Section 89, which is a very rigid, if you use Huawei equipment, and there's still some lack of clarity there about what use means, but it doesn't really allow for this more adaptive risk-based approach. And the example you gave, Tom, is great. You can imagine a camera or a sensor or a network device that in the wrong place, it's incredibly sensitive and potentially the consequences could be very high. But if, like you said, all it's doing is controlling some basic function that's not connected to the internet, it doesn't share data, you could still envision some scenario where there's risk there, but it's so much smaller that it's a reasonable question to ask about what the appropriate step is to mitigate that risk compared to the cost of ripping it out and replacing it with something else.
0: And finally, we have these rules that came out as interim final, which means that they came out and they came out and they were therefore in effect. But being interim, they can still be modified. What's the prospects there for changing them or getting listened to so that they get subsequent set of interim rules?
1: I don't know that I can tell you exactly what the prospects are for them to be modified, but the fact of the matter that they were posted as interim rules means that the government understands that there needs to be a feedback mechanism and process from the private sector, from industry, from affected parties. It is a little bit of a source of frustration that many of these key rules like this one or the Section 889 rules, rather than coming out as proposed rules where there could be feedback and discussion between all the affected parties before they go into effect. They're coming out as interim rules scheduled to go into effect already, and then they have to be modified because, of course, there's going to be cost to implementing the interim rules, and if there are changes, somebody's going to have to pay for that as well. So it's a suboptimal way to do it. It's better that they do them as interim rules and allow for feedback than not allow for feedback at all, of course. But in the ideal world, they would come out as proposed rules and there would be more of that dialogue back and forth between industry and government even before
0: we get to the actual rule. Gordon Bitko is Vice President for Policy at the Information Technology Industry Council. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Tom, pleasure to be with you as always.
0: We'll post this interview along with the council's comments at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com slash vision. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate Plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifolsplasma.com.